Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about healing our primal invisible wounds, journeying to wholeness. My first guest is Dr. Judith Ruske Rabinor. She is a clinician, author, writing coach, speaker, and workshop leader. In addition to her New York City private psychotherapy practice, Dr. Ruske Rabinor offers remote consultations for writers, clinicians, and families. She has published dozens of articles for both the public and professional worlds and has authored several books. The one we're talking about today is The Girl in the Red Boots, Making Peace with My Mother. Welcome to the show, Judith. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Well, I am so delighted to tackle this subject matter because it is a very complicated one in many ways. Let's first dive right in and talk about the why the mother relationship is so important, especially for our daughters. Okay. I think it's almost obvious, but I'm going to state it. Our mothers are our first lovers and our first rejectors. They're our first lovers and our first heartbreaks. Think about your mother holding you closely, tightly. And now think about how she has to put you down. Something happens. It's time for a nap. Think about how many tears we shed as babies when we're frustrated by our mothers. So our mothers are our first lovers, our first heartbreaks, and they lay down a template that is with us forever of how we expect to be held and how we expect to be abandoned. Yes. And it sets the tempo, I think, for how we structure the relationships moving forward, either what we seek or what we're attracted to. Exactly. So sometimes we think that we're interested in finding something different than the mother love we had, but often we are compelled to repeat the same relationship, because that's really what we know. And we are creatures of habit. We go back to what we know well. And when we talk about, you know, how we connect to our mothers, and for some of us, that relationship is so complex, and it's rife with all kinds of challenges and pleasures at the same time. Exactly. Our mother is the source of comfort, the source of safety. When we are born, we need our mothers in the most desperate way. And if we do not get enough of what we need, that need remains. And it's really interesting when I meet people who are, you know, much older adults and they're filled with complaints and gripes. 
One of the things I usually think and try to communicate is beneath every complaint and gripe is a longing. Yes. A longing. Yes, a longing. Yeah. Yeah. Or a disappointment, right? That there's sadness about some some peace not being fulfilled or met. Exactly. And those disappointments, they stay with us. I mean, it's so interesting, Lisa, because what we've learned in the last 20 years is that our brains are wired to hold on to danger, to hold and to protect us. So if you have been dropped uh, metaphorically or literally by your mother, you will remember that more than the 5,000 times you fell off your bicycle and you sat on her lap and she gave you cuddles. Yeah. The good often evaporates and we hold on to the negative like Velcro. There's a saying, Velcro for the bad, Teflon for the good. And <laughs> isn't that isn't that crazy that the brain would do this? Yeah, but it is part of our wiring, right? It is uh, part of our wiring because we were animals in the forest. And if your mother didn't protect you, you didn't make it. You needed your mother for, for protection. And I think about that if I'm in the car with somebody who's having a temper tantrum because we're stuck in traffic, something you can't control. You wonder what got activated in this generally very smart person, his primitive brain. He's frustrated and he's yelling and snarling and having a little mini rage because he's being frustrated and something very infantile got triggered. It's really kind of hard, sad to say, but at heart, we really are little tiny animals. And and the the soothing and the comfort and the connection that we, we do receive or we don't receive from our mothers oftentimes catalyzes, like you say, the behavior that we might have when we're in a difficult spot, or we may behave completely the opposite. In the case, for example, where you have a mom that might have been that comforting, nurturing, all-encompassing provider of safety and support when one is little, but then um, the child reaches adolescence or early adulthood and mom doesn't know how to deal with this burgeoning spirit and becomes an emotional terrorist. It happens. It happens. And that's another thing that what really matters most, according to most theoretical perspectives, is what happens when we're little, because that is when we're very young, when we're infants, because that is when we need safety to survive. And if we don't get what we need when we're young, we can often, unless we really work hard on this, spend the rest of our life craving it, longing for it, and become easily frustrated. So that driver who's having a temper tantrum, he has reverted back to some kind of childlike behavior. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. I'm sure you've been in a car with at least one person who exhibits this kind of behavior, <laughs> the right? The road rager. The road rager, Exactly. Well, exactly. is, I mean, anger at the end of the day, it's not what we think it is anyway, right? Anger is, is considered a secondary emotion, right? And at the root of anger is something deeper, right? It's, just, it's loss Perfect. or grief. Yes, I was just going to say loss, grief and depression, anger masks over. And you bring up a really um, interesting point. We are in a culture that really doesn't provide proper access for grief. Life is filled with many potholes. And, you know, a century ago, when somebody died, women in Italy, for example, wore black for a year. Mourning was a year. 
Now, mourning is like a week. Mourning is a week. People are expected to get right back to life. They're expected to go back to work. And we don't really have the proper rituals for mourning. Yes. And I, and you know, I can, I can speak from that from a very personal perspective. In recently, I lost my aunt very suddenly and unexpectedly. And I really was observing the sadness that I was feeling and really came to understand, like putting my finger on it, that grief is a zigzag experience, right? It's not linear. You don't move through the phases from A to B to C to D and so on till completion, right? It's kind of circular and, and windy. Right. It, we loop back and forth from one phase to another. Yeah. And you're bringing up a really important part. And that is the, the part that we often skip over is the accepting, the accepting of the grief to allow yourself to languish in it and recognize this person is gone. I too recently lost two people. And I notice how hard it is for me to really face that these people are no longer here. In the physical uh, sense. In the physical sense. In the physical sense, they are no longer here. They are not people that I can turn to anymore. I am not going to share another event with them. Yes, I have my good memories. But going forward, I'm, I have to face that there's a loss there. Yeah. And when we face these inevitable losses... You know, because we will all experience this at some point in our lives. And if there is unfinished business in that relationship, how do we make peace? I mean, taking the conversation back to this important mother connection and mother relationship, even if we have not lost that particular parent, how do we make peace? Well, one way is sometimes I ask people, make a list of what you've lost. And it always surprises people that the loss is deeper and wider, that when we really stop and think this was a person I could call, you're talking about your aunt. Yeah. Think about the holidays that you've shared with that person. Think about the fact that you knew that that person was there even when you didn't call them. Knowing that we have the kind of support, the supportive person standing in the wings of our life gives us a sense of stability, a sense of security. And suddenly, if that person is gone, it really matters. So when I ask people to make a list, I'm actually asking them to name all the things that they no longer have. And there's an expression in psychology, name it to tame it. Mm -hmm. That you rush around. And I like that a lot. And I tell my patients that and I think about that myself. After all, you know, I'm facing this Mother's Day without my mother. And I'm thinking about all the things I took for granted, all the things I took for granted as she'd come to my house and she'd always think, how can you leave the dishwasher undone the whole day? And I would think, well, I just can. I'm writing a book. And she would start undoing. She would start taking the dishes out of the dishwasher. And it was like our little ritual of connection. You know, even when she was quite old, she'd want to help me in that way. I didn't need her help, but I liked it. I depended on it. It was part of the fabric of my life. Yeah. So all these little things, even as I'm talking to you, Lisa, just thinking about my mother emptying my dishwasher, I kind of feel my body um, getting a little warm. Yeah. You know, I'm experiencing the love that I had and I took for granted. And taking love for granted is, it's not a given. 
it's not a given. I am reading Vivian Gornick's Fierce Attachments right now. Somebody sent it to me. It just appeared in my mailbox, which I thought was fabulous. And I had not known her work. Have you ever read her her work? I not only have read her, but she. I'll, I'll say something when you finish. I read that book and I love that book. That is the book that, that catapulted personal memoir into the state that it is now. She was the first one who wrote this uh fabulous book about her ambivalence towards her mother, right? How much she loved her mother and how her mother got on her nerves. And yet their common thread were these walkabouts that they'd make in New York City. Right? Exactly. And and that was that was their tether to one another because they were very, very different people. And I think that when I read your book and I was thinking of, uh, of fierce attachments and this whole mother daughter relationship thing. And I'm the mother of a young adult woman and, and man and my own relationship with my children. It does make emotion well up inside of me. Yes, exactly. We are going to take a short break and then return to this very deep and juicy conversation with my guest today, Dr. Judith Ruske Rabinor. We're talking about her latest book, The Girl in the Red Boots, Making Peace with My Mother. To learn more about Judith's work, please go to judithruskerabinorphd.com, on Twitter at Dr. Judy Rabinor, on Facebook, Girl in Red Boots, and on Instagram, Dr. Judy Rabinor. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. We're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Judith Ruske Rabinor. We're talking about healing our primal invisible wounds, journeying to wholeness. Let's get back to it. So, Judy, prior to the break, we were talking about the amazing work of Vivian Gornick and her book, Fierce Attachments, which you said impacted you as, as it is impacting me. And during the break, you mentioned a line from one of her other books. And I would love for you to share that because it's very relevant to this story. Yeah, it's very relevant. She's talking to writers, but she's really all of us are writers. We're all chatting to ourselves all day long. We're writing our own story. And one of the points of my book is that we can rewrite our stories. And if you're walking around all day long thinking, I'm so mad at my mother because she did this and she did that, and she didn't do this and she didn't do that, that's a sad story that you're telling yourself. It's a very sad story. And one of the things that could help you would be to think about one or two or three or many of the things that she did do that really helped you. Yeah. And that's a way of rebalancing our memories. It doesn't mean we're eradicating the sad things that happened and the damaging things that happened, but it means we're making room inside for both and we're rebalancing our vision of our mother's. Now, the question that you asked me, this comes directly from Vivian Gornick. She has a book called The Structure of Story. I think that's the name of it. And she has a line that I had taped up above my computer, and it says, be careful, because nobody is a monster and nobody is a saint. We must really look at the complexity, that's the key word, of every person 
that if you're here today, I'm talking to our listening audience, somebody helped you get from the first minute of birth to grow up, right? That your mother did something. And sometimes, Lisa, you mentioned being a mother. It's not until we're mothers ourselves that we understand the complexity of mothering, right? Oh, yeah. It's a big job. (laughs) It's a big job that we're unprepared for, right? Yes. Yes. And, you know, I I remember in grad school, I had a professor because I was in school for psychology and we were talking about, you know, our parents and parental, you know, trauma when we were young. And the reality of it is we're all just humans trying to do life with the best way that we can with the tools and resources available to ourselves at that time. Yes, and we're also given an unrealistic idea of mothering. For example, anybody out there listening, if you look at the Mother's Day cards and you see all these beautiful pictures, well, these are things that we all wish we had, but nobody shows a picture of what it's like for the mother of a young infant who's woken up at 3 a.m. and then maybe at 4.30 a.m. and then maybe at 5.57 And that mother doesn't look so happy, right? That mother is actually kind of grouchy and upset and is a little impatient and wants that baby to go back to sleep. And that's another reality of life, that that mothers are not always smiling and being patient and being supportive and being happy about carpooling their kids around and helping them with their homework. And so what we really hope for uh, to be a good enough mother, and I love that phrase, good enough mother. Me too. Don't you love that? (laughs) I do. I I felt a sense of relief when I heard that term. Like, oh, I'm okay with that. I am signed on to be good enough. (laughs) It's okay. A very famous psychiatrist named Winnicott created that phrase. And that phrase makes me go, good enough. That means you have the right to sometimes blow up at your kids. You have the right to say no. You have the right to say yes to yourself. It's very difficult to be a parent and it's very taxing. But in terms of making peace with our mothers, what we really need to do is think about our own minds and think about how can I rearrange my own story so I can remember some of the good that I got. And as I said before, Sometimes that's really impossible. The bad stories seem to have such power, such precedence. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do know what you mean. And I do like this idea of reframing and contextualizing those moments, you know, those difficult moments. And then, you know, maybe we bless it with some grace, you know, some some self-acceptance and grace. And we can be generous then with our mothers, our fathers, and anybody else who had a role in our uh, child rearing and our coming of age. Well, I love the idea of blessing it with grace, because the truth of the matter is, every time we're disappointed as a child, we have to grow new muscles. And the child who would be given a parent who did every single thing for them would really never become strong, would never become independent. So parenting is a balancing act of feeding your children, feeding them both physically and psychologically, as well as allowing them to feed themselves. And, you know, we see a preponderance of helicopter moms today who are really robbing their children of certain opportunities that they need in order to develop the muscles of life. Yeah, 
I agree. It's, you know, it's kind of the blessings of a skin knee, right? When we allow our children to sort of step into their own power and fall, which they inevitably will. I love that book too. The blessings yeah, of a skin. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wendy Mogul. <laughs> yeah. That, that's a terrific, it's a terrific title. And that title just says so much, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, it does. We are nearly out of time and I want to jump towards the end of the book because there is a, a toolkit. I think it's a toolkit at the end of the book, which are guided imageries of ways that we can celebrate and pay homage to this important relationship. And one in particular, I'd love for you to talk about the guided imageries briefly, but I would love for you to read part eight, which is such a beautiful one before we go. Thank you. I love the the, the uh, guided imageries in the back. And like, for example, if I just say to you, close your eyes and think about yourself as a baby in the crib, I'm bringing you in touch with a sensory experience. And it's almost wordless, right? It's almost wordless yes. to imagine yourself in a crib and imagine your mother cracking the door. But that is how we all started out. So anyone looking for a way to celebrate your mother, to remember, to deepen that relationship. The book is filled with imageries that ask you to think about her, because often we don't think about our mothers as people. We think about them as mothers, as our mothers. And really taking into your, your heart your mother's life is one way that you can appreciate your mother's story, your mother's journey, and how she became who she is. Some people say that the way to really understand your mother is to write a narrative of her life and understand what shaped her, just as we're all quite interested in what shaped us. But the imagery that I think you're referring to, can I read it now? Yes, I would love for you to read it. So anybody who's not sure how you're going to handle Mother's Day, create a ritual for yourself and your mother, whether it's lighting a candle, making a small altar of keepsakes, or writing something to or about her, a letter, a poem, or just a few words. Be as creative as you like, and whether your mother is living or dead, the point is to honor the way she lives on inside of you. Yeah. 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 Um, live on. I'm still thinking about the dishwasher story I told you, how I never really appreciated how much my mother really wanted to help me until I think about the little details of her life and the way she was. And it does. It makes me feel all warm and cozy inside thinking about. She did some things that didn't have a good impact on me, but she did others to really show that she loved me. And I just want to close with the two more lines in that passage of retelling our stories, which is your mother is the most important woman you will ever know. Your mother welcomed you to womanhood. My guest today has been Dr. Judith Ruske Rabinor. To learn more about Judith and her work and her books, particularly the one we were speaking of today, The Girl in the Red Boots, Making Peace with My Mother, please visit JudithRuskeRabinorPhD.com, on Twitter at Dr. Judy Rabinor, on Facebook, Girl in Red Boots, and on Instagram, that handle is Dr. Judy Rabinor. 
Judy, I'm sending you some mother love. (laughs) And I'm sending it back to you, Lisa. I wanted to hear more about your story, but that's going to be for another time. Another time. Let's take that brief break. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. And we're back talking about healing our primal invisible wounds, the journey to wholeness. My next guest is Dr. Patty Ashley. Dr. Ashley brings unique insight into the identification and treatment of trauma, shame, grief, and dysfunctional family patterns. Her signature model of authenticity architecture creates long-term changes in the brain and central nervous system, breaking through barriers to personal freedom and authentic growth while excavating the truth of self-love, belonging, and connection. Patty holds a PhD in psychology from the Union Institute and University. Actually, that's my alma mater as well. She is the author of Living in the Shadow of the Too Good Mother Archetype, Letters to Freedom, and the upcoming Shame-Informed Therapy, The Art and Architecture of Reconstructing the Authentic Self. Patty, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for having me. And yay, we're from the same Union Institute and University. That's yes, me. yes, yes. I did my undergraduate there. That's so funny. Oh, wow. Yes. So let's talk about TLC in times of trauma and how it really goes back to the the primal urge of the mother to be nourished and loved and cared for by the mother and how we are fearful right now. I mean, everybody is scrambling in some way or another because life has suddenly gotten pretty surreal. Yeah, it certainly has. And I feel like it's interesting how my work is woven all together from working as a grief counselor because I lost my dad as a kid into really getting deep into mothering as a mom and wanting to do the right thing. And then recognizing the shame that's kind of rampant in moms of this not enoughness and what all that's about. And then moving more into work with shame in the body, which then led me to trauma in the body So putting all that together and what's happening now, it's fascinating for me to see how people are responding and what's happening is a nervous system response to emotional safety and not feeling emotionally safe. So what we've learned about the shame research, which, you know, the word shame itself is shaming and it's hard to explain. Sometimes when I talk about people like, what are you talking about shame? I didn't do anything wrong. But shame is really this feeling of what we the researchers have found is its core shame is I'm not enough. Um, I'm not good enough. And that create that comes from this feeling of not having our nonverbal sensory needs met adequately, which is what happened when we go back into looking at some of the old parenting pedagogies, such as stop crying before I give you something to cry about. You should be ashamed of yourself don't do this, don't feel, don't, don't be jealous, don't be angry. So 
we haven't really had language for what to do with this nonverbal emotional content. And most of us have been shamed for feeling emotions, you know, punished for having temper tantrums, punished for feeling, told to get over it. So most of us haven't really been allowed or taught how to grieve, grief to completion. And so losing my dad as a kid, my life's journey has been about that. And it's all then evolved into mothering. So how does what's going on right now relate to all that perfectly? Because if there's a sensory memory of not feeling emotionally safe and not really having language for what to do with that emotion, the body holds it as a memory, but it's unconscious and nonverbal and there's no time. So what's happening now is people are feeling unsafe in so many ways. One, about just getting the virus. Two, you know, if the older people who are at more at risk of dying. Three, we're all socially isolating, so now we're not connected. Four, that means we might lose income. And then what? And then five and six and seven and eight, we could go on and on and on, right? But what's happening now is the body memory of not being emotionally safe is coming up as if it's happening now. And people don't know how to process that because it's nonverbal. Yeah. Let, let's talk a little bit about the biology of what you're you're sharing, because when the body goes into uh, a trauma response, um, it's the, you know, it's called what uh, Daniel Goldman called it the amygdala hijacking, right? Where we start to have this fight or flight response. And then we've got all of these chemicals coursing through our, our bodies, right? We have adrenaline, we have cortisol preparing the body to fight flight or what is it? Fight, flight or flee. And as if the saber toothed tiger were going to kill us and there is no saber toothed tiger, although the perception is I'm just going to use COVID-19 as, as the example, the perception is that is the saber toothed tiger. Exactly. We're in mortal danger. And exactly. there is some truth to it. it there, there, the neurobiology of that is absolutely true. And that's why I was saying earlier, the, the shame research that is aligned with the trauma research is exactly what you just said. And so the neurobiology of that is the primitive brain, the brainstem that, that was developed originally in our brains back in the day when we had to run from the saber-toothed tiger, that gets activated, the frontal lobe goes offline, and we are just feeling so many emotions and we don't know what to do with them because, again, we haven't had any, it's, I always say it's, it's brand new, hot off the press. What do we do with our emotional, social, emotional selves? We've never been taught that we've learned. We were, I always say we're the only species that has to research itself to know how to get along with each other because the animal kingdom seems to figure it out. But we had research in the last century that, that told us how children think very different from adults that, that taught us so much about trauma that taught us so much about connection and attachment theory and all that. And so, but we're reading books about it, but in our DNA, we're carrying the memory of doing it the old way. So we need to train our bodies to come into present moment safety and create a new story. So Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory um, is key in that, and that the, the vagal nerve comes from uh, a, comes out of the brainstem and goes down and goes into our body, into our heart and our lungs. It kind of wraps around. They call it the wanderer. 
And so when we say body memory, like if we have digestive issues or, you know, our heart's racing, it's because that nerve coming from the brainstem that says the saber tooth tiger is coming is activated to try and get us in, in whatever response, social engagement response we may have, have developed, which is similar to fight, flight, or flee, freeze. And so... We have to tell our body in this moment, mindfulness meditation in the present moment is key here. It's coming into, I, I call, I call it the fantastic five. What are five things that are happening right now that are safe? My cat is purring. My fire is burning uh, in the fireplace safely. The food is cooking. I have a warm blanket. You know, I, I'm reading my favorite book and then the body goes, oh, I'm in safety right now, gets the frontal lobe back online. So then we can start, you know, figuring out that whatever happens in the world, we're in the big unknown. And that's the thing we are so afraid of is the big unknown. We like to know, we like to be in control of our lives. We like to have insurance for everything <laughs> because we don't want to go into this fear um, and so, hang on, let me just jump in here. And I think it's important to define what happens in the prefrontal cortex, because uh, not everybody knows what goes on in that part of the brain. Um, and go, I would love for you to go ahead and share it. Yeah, I mean, one psychologist calls it the the co like the cockpit of a plane. You know, it has all the controls, it has the reasoning, it has that's just why people with ADHD have frontal lobe usually issues in, in regulating their frontal lobe because they, the organization and the structure and the planning is all frontal lobe. And so it puts together the sensory information that we take in and, and, and both logic and emotion, it puts it together and creates a workable structure so we can't create a workable structure when the reptilian brain is saying, run from the saber-toothed tiger because you're not safe. We're just trying to find safety. And so we, we have to get that frontal lobe back online by finding present moment body safety. And when we are in the stress state, as, as many of us have been for, for days and weeks, if not longer, as a result of what's going on in our environment, that part of the brain goes offline. So we are decisionally impaired. It's hard for us to make good decisions. It's hard to, for us to make rational decisions. It's hard for us to focus. I mean, there are a bunch of things that happen as a result of being in that state. So I think your point is really important about trying to bring oneself back into the body and recognize that there's safety in the moment. But for, for some people, the, the mindfulness practices, tr traditional mindfulness practices might be challenging at first. So what are some other ways that we can coach people to get back in their bodies here and now, like right quick? Yeah. You know, and it's interesting because I've been saying to um, a couple of my young clients this week, college and high school age girls, about the mindfulness and, and they're saying, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't quiet my mind. I'm too distracted. And that's what they're saying is I can't get out of my trauma response. So very good question is to, first of all, you just start with a deep breath in, and into your lower belly. And I'm even hesitate, hesitate to say that because I know people who do have the coronavirus, you know, it's going to be affecting their lungs and the deep breath might be challenging. 
So you, but you work with the breath, you work with being present in your body in the moment, just come back to here and now and find something like a lot of times I'll have people just like touch the, the chair or the sofa or a stuffed animal and feel uh, in the body and feel comfort in where they are right now. And then just to take that in for a minute. And then what I do when I do meditations that I'm offering every morning now on my newsletter, I'm sending out a five to 10 minute mindfulness meditation. And it's helping me because I get up in the morning and I do it myself. And I thought I'd just share it with my audience. Um, So if anyone is interested in that, it's signing up on my website is pretty easy to do. But my mindfulness meditation, I don't do one where I just say, okay, sit and quiet your mind, because we really can't quiet the mind. So I take people on a journey, some sort of guided imagery kind of thing, like, um, you know, sitting outside with a council of elders around a bonfire and taking in, you know, wisdom and releasing things in the fire. That was one of the meditations I did, that sort of thing. So it, it gets our mind out of what all the chatter in the present day is and brings us back into some sort of imagery because imagination is just as powerful in our bodies as real life. So we want to imagine something that isn't in the midst of the chaos story around what's going on right now. And people are having a hard time doing that, but even for a few minutes, it gives that body, the nervous system, a time to relax a little bit and helps to rewire it. We are going to jump off to a break. And when we return, we will continue the conversation with Dr. Patty Ashley to learn more about her work, to sign up for those daily meditations. Um, Hop on over to pattyashley.com on Twitter at Patty Ashley, Facebook, Patty Ashley, and on Instagram, it is P Ashley PhD. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Continuing the conversation with Dr. Patty Ashley, we're speaking about healing our primal invisible wounds, the journey to wholeness. Let's get back to the conversation. And Patty and I, prior to the break, we were talking in the last segment about what happens to the body in trauma mode, how traumas of the past sort of permeate and infiltrate when there is a present trauma or the threat of present danger. So Patty, I'd love for you to offer some support to our listeners about ways that we can mother or nurture ourselves right now. Yeah. And that is so important, isn't it? Because if we go back to how our 
social emotional safety got set up, we look at the first three years of our life where, you know, if you look at a little newborn baby, baby isn't born talking. The baby doesn't come out of the womb and say, I'm really hungry. Can you fix me a bottle? You know, the baby comes out nonverbal. So a lot of our learning to be emotionally safe, well, all of our learning, well, I guess I could say all, most of our learning is sensory. And so it's about being held. It's about feeling safe. Babies are born with a fear of falling and loud noises. Those are the only fears they have, which is why they have to be held and contained and, and swaddled. And um, so they feel close. So as we grow up and we are mothering our own children or paying attention to what's coming up for us, we have to go back to that sensory safety feeling. So people, some people now have like weighted blankets. They're amazing because they, the weight on your body helps your body feel safe. Even just wrapping up in a comforter, holding your pet. If you can get out in nature and be near a tree, you know, mother earth, anything that gives us our body a sensory feeling of safety is going to help more than any of the stories we tell ourselves in our heads because the stories we tell ourselves in our heads are just things that we made up to try and feel safe. But the real safety is in the body feeling held and loved and nurtured. I love that you suggest those weighted blankets. So this is something that many people have them. It's also you can layer up multiple blankets if you don't have one of those so-called professional weighted blankets. Um, what about maybe preparing comfort foods or making some adjustments in the home environment that feel safe, feel reminiscent of a, of a safe and happy moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I, I think it's very important to create a safe environment to come home to and, you know, a safe place to land. We all need that and want that. And everybody has different comfort needs. So what are creature comforts? For me, it's, it's beautiful things. It's art. I like to do art too. Any, anything creative arts and movement and music and dance, anything that activates the right brain yes. rewires it. And so it gives it this feeling of joy and pleasure, humor, you know, playfulness. I just saw a little thing on Facebook of Carol Burnett with the toilet scenes about this toilet paper. And, and I, it was funny because I laughed or I watched an old Jimmy Fallon, um, uh, you know, tape last night and I laughed and it felt good. And, and that's what we want to do. We can't solve the coronavirus. We can't fix all of the economic problems that may result from all this. We can't fix a lot of the things that are out there, but if we can give our body experiences of joy and pleasure and humor in the moment, they're still there. And the body doesn't know the difference. The body doesn't know that, you know, three months from now, we're all going to be recovering from all of this. The body just either feels safe or not safe. Yes. And so we want to go in the safe. Create, and creating the safety for ourselves is super important. And there are other ways, you know, the consistency in the schedule, like you and I spoke about how great it was to be able to see each other. Like, and for me, I've been doing interviews all day and every single person that showed up today was like, you don't know how nice it was to have something on my calendar. It's made my day. It's not me personally. It's the fact that they had some place to be and that they could connect with another human being that could relate to the experience because we are all in this one together actually. 
Absolutely. And like I was saying, thank goodness we do have the internet and we do have phones and and we can connect to people in our social isolation because we're wired for connection. And it's really important to stay connected and hopefully have a routine too. I got up and put makeup on this morning because I'm trying to do more Facebook lives. And I thought, Usually when I stay home, I like to, you know, sweatpants and no makeup, but I put on makeup and I was like, this feels kind of good. You know, I feels like a regular day. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. So, so people can check out. Let's just tap into that for a second. You're doing Facebook lives. Are you offering support for what's going on in the world? Is that the the theme of the Facebook lives? I am. It's a creative process that's happening each day. I, it's been something I've been wanting to do more of, and this is really pushing me to do it. And it's been super sweet to see people showing up and, and all of us trying to connect. I think it's, it's important. And I don't have a, a talk about structure or schedule or method or rhythm to it yet, but I'm working on it. I'm also going to be working on some online courses like around the polyvagal theory and around trauma and grief and this sort of thing that people can sign up for. I'm trying to do some Zoom classes with a friend of mine. I think we're going to call it um, looking for the helpers and interviewing some of my friends and colleagues who do work in the field of helping. But my website, which is patty with an I, pattyashley.com, you can sign up for my newsletter and every morning I'm sending out a five to 10 minute mindfulness meditation. Um, so I'm hoping to be offering more. I've got the next few days to really get that structure in place, but you can find out more on my website as it evolves. Let me just go back to the polyvagal theory and ways in which we humans can, um, help stimulate the vagus nerve because when, when the, the nerve does get stimulated, it, it releases oxytocin, does it not? The body releases oxytocin? Yeah, it does. And, and you know what Stephen Porges is saying is that even if you can extend the exhale a couple more seconds, that helps because it comes out of the brainstem and goes down the shoulders and around through the body. I, I actually just visualize like, healing, warm elixir just running through that area because that's what we want to do. We want to tell that nerve, you're good, we're safe. And then the body tends to relax. Yeah. And we don't necessarily notice that we're not relaxed because we're just busy in our trauma response. But there's several very interesting articles on the vagus nerve. And if um, listeners are curious, I urge you to do a little research on that, because if that nerve can get some stimulation in times of stress, you can really help to reduce some of the physical symptoms of the stress and anxiety. Um, I had a yoga teacher once, and I don't know if this is true or not, but he said that if you you know, like take your arms and and put them in circles, you know, like over your head, like swooping, that that mm-hmm. stimulates that nerve. And I don't know if that's true or not, that I'd like to believe that that there are some physical um, practices that can do so. Yeah, and I read somewhere too, that even gargling stimulates the nerve because in the throat. So I think there are a lot of good resources out there and a lot of ways to do it. My work is really around the emotional safety. What can I do to feel emotionally safe and therefore then calm the nervous system? So the body's like, okay, we're good. Dance is great. Singing and chanting. Porges says that 
prosodic sound, which is the sound underneath music and poetry. The rhythm is so healing. So there's a lot of sound healing out there that people are doing. Even just chanting, even just, you know, in your own home, it's to stimulate um, the vocal cords actually, you know, helps the vagus nerve. So there's a lot of different things to do out there. I think for me, my work is really about how can we get really in the body in the moment and breathe and be present as a number one. Turn on your favorite tunes and move. And it's free. (laughs) Dance around your living room. It's so healing. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for coming and sharing strategies, talking a little bit about the authentic architecture process. We really didn't get a chance to get into sort of the, the two, the two good mother, but that we might have to save that for a, a, another episode and another time. I think everybody's in need of some mothering right now. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd love to come back and talk with you more about that, Lisa. To learn more about the work of Dr. Patty Ashley, please go to pattyashley.com. And that's Patty with an I on her website. You can also access the daily meditations if you sign up for her newsletter. On Twitter, you can find Dr. Patty Ashley at Patty Ashley and the same on Facebook and Instagram. It is P Ashley PhD. Thank you, Patty. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests, Dr. Judith ruske Rabinor and Dr. Patty Ashley, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to each other. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere. From the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio. KBUU-RadioMalibu.net and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.